Hello and welcome back to the football podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. We're back from a short break and we're back with a very special guest, journalist extraordinaire, musician extraordinaire, and most importantly, I think in these troubled times, a ferocious excavator of truth. Welcome back to the transfer window, Philippe Auclair. Thank you very much, Duncan. I mean, excavator of truth. I'm going to put that in my business card from now on. <laughs> thank you. For, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, speaking to us again. Um, among other subjects, we're going to discuss Chelsea, as we have to do this week, Everton, um, Monaco, and football geopolitics. Um <laughs> Philippe is here as a, as a super substitute for Ian McGarry, who in best transfer window podcast tradition is off hunting butterflies. I'm going to start with a bit of exclusive news that, um, that Ian has passed on um, and passed on before his, his butterfly sojourn, which is about Carlo Ancelotti's response when he was contacted by Manchester United uh, as part of their search for um, what they like to describe as a permanent successor to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. We can tell you that that contact was from the new Manchester United Chief Executive Richard Arnold. It took place over two weeks ago. Um, Ancelotti was told that they were interested in him because they saw him as an experienced, mature leader who is a proven winner of trophies. Um, he has, according to someone close to Carlo, had a long-held ambition to manage Manchester United and he believes that he could make a difference in the current circumstances. He's not unhappy at Real Madrid at present, but he's also not entirely content. Um, there are several factors here. One is that, uh, that Ancelotti um, was approached by Manchester United in the past um, by Sir Alex Ferguson when Ferguson was looking for successors uh, before his retirement in 2013. He has a strong relationship with Cristiano Ronaldo, um, an, an important factor in the current Manchester United. And also I think has to be taken into account that his position is now in danger at Real Madrid. Um, I talked to a source at the Spanish club today. He told me that no decision had been made on Ancelotti's future, but it is essential for Florentino Perez that they defeat Paris Saint-Germain and that Florentino Perez was not happy with the way in which they played the game, uh, not only the result, but the manner in which they played in Paris in the first leg of their Champions League round of 16 game. So that there's a, a real possibility that Ancelotti might be available uh, without compensation in the summer. Um, Philippe, what do you think about the idea of Ancelotti as the solution to Manchester United's many, many problems? I find it um, puzzling, Duncan. Um, because what it makes me wonder about is uh, why exactly did they uh, get Ralph Rangnick uh, if indeed they're turning to somebody like Carlo Ancelotti. Uh, my generous interpretation of going for Ralph Rangnick was that the club realized that what they needed was a, a long-term strategy and that Rangnick could play a double role. Uh, one, first of all, to um, smooth down things to be a, you know, what the Italians call a ferryman, somebody who can take you to the end of the season uh, on less choppy waters. Yes. Uh, but also could then uh, become somebody who would give uh, Manchester United the 
strategic um, view that has been missing from the club for so long. And he's, you know, obviously very well placed to do such a thing. It is actually, you would say, is USP uh, the thing at which he's best. And then Rangnick then would, would turn into some kind of super consultant and, and help the club put together a long-term project um, in which, you know, he would draw from his experience with the Red Bull group and, um, and therefore create a new legacy, so to speak. And I thought, actually, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. And uh, if he's given uh, the possibility of doing, uh, of doing that, that actually might work in the longer term, and which is something which Manchester United definitely needs. Now, I cannot see for the life of me how Carly Ancelotti would, you know, brilliant as he is as a manager, and however much we love him, and we all love him, <laughs> um, how he can fit in that kind of uh, strategic long-term view uh, at his age, given his record, given the type of manager he is. Um, yes, he's a, he's a proven trophy winner. Um, what can I say about Cameron Shorty that hasn't been said a hundred times before? But on the other hand, if you're looking at somebody who is going to try to start a new legacy, as it were, I don't necessarily think that Carlo is, is the right person for that. Um, and maybe he would be a very successful appointment in the immediate term. Um, but I see that as very paradoxical because that would go against what I thought was the long-term view behind Ralph Rangnick's appointment. So yeah. it's a kind of, uh, and, I, and I find that a bit difficult to, uh, to reconciliate too. Now, it is Manchester United, and we know that contradiction has not exactly been absent from the club's life over the last few years. And actually, even before uh, Sir Alex Ferguson decided to, uh, to leave the club and David Gill decided to leave the club, that, that were signs that things were not exactly working as they should. But this really surprises me um, in, in terms of the logic of it. On the other hand, can I see it happening? Absolutely. Uh, but... I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I thought if Brangnick is coming, is to put in somebody who is coming from the same kind of school, a younger manager perhaps, who is going to shake up the, the culture and impose a different type of culture on the club and among the players. And do you think Carlo Ancelotti could do that? He could manage those players, of course. He could get results, yes, of course, but... Would he be that kind of manager? I don't I, think so. I think you, I think you pick up on a lot of key points. The the apparent illogicality of the move, the paradoxical nature of it. I think you're absolutely correct to say that the idea was that Ranyuk would lead a change, and that Ranyuk's own idea was that he wouldn't just lead it as a consultant at the end of the season. He was coming in thinking he would continue as manager. That has fallen away because of results, because of the lack of of. Mm the expected improvement and because of the response of um of the players and something that we've we've talked in detail on on various previous transfer window podcasts about um and, and i think it is very typical of manchester united for them to swing from one stated strategy to another um, and to also, I think there is an element here, again, something that we've, we've discussed in previous podcasts. You have a new chief executive coming in. He wants this to be his appointment and he wants to cover the basis. Um, he wants to look at a range of candidates available. He has Maurizio Pochettino pushing very hard to take the job as he had when Solskjaer was on his, on his way out and Pochettino wasn't able to extract himself from PSG. Um, he has a, a support that would like Eric Ten Hag um, to come 
in his place. Um, Decision making hasn't been Manchester United's strong point <laughs> since no. since Ferguson's exit, and uh, and therefore you get I think these these series of of illogical and apparently paradoxical decisions. But let's because we have a lot to fit in in this podcast, mm. and there has been a huge amount happening in in. English football and world football this week. Let's move on to Chelsea and the decision of, of Roman Abramovich to announce that he was selling the club um, in a quite incredible um, few days. On Saturday, we had a statement from Abramovich saying that he was going to hand over stewardship of the club to Chelsea's charitable foundation. Um, by Sunday, the club was having to make a, a statement on the conflict in Ukraine because of criticism that the Ukraine had not been mentioned in that original statement from Abramovich. There was still no mention of war, no mention of the word invasion, or even any mention of the word Russia, which is interesting given that uh, the Russian government at that time was instructing media organisations in Russia not to use the word war or invasion in the context of what they call a military operation in Ukraine. And then by Wednesday, um, we have Abramovich announcing that he'd taken a decision to sell the club for what he believed was in the best interest of the club. Um, uh, a statement I think I'll, I'll leave you to, to pick apart uh, in terms of what he said about loans being repaid and what proceeds would be would come from the sale and where those proceeds would be directed to. Well, Duncan, I think that clarification has been pretty difficult from the word go as far as these statements have been concerned, because uh, as I'm sure you do, I remember coming across the statement on uh, Saturday and wondering what exactly it meant, what the word stewardship, which I'd never seen used in this context, could possibly mean. Was it a transfer of uh, management uh, capacities? Uh, was it a transfer of ownership? And you know, pretty clearly it wasn't that. But, and I remember at the time seeking clarification uh, from a few people around the club, and I wasn't getting much further than I did when I first discovered the text. And then it became clear that it was not a transfer of ownership, but it also became clear that the people, the trustees of the foundation itself, uh, and by the way, among these trustees are people like Bruce Buck, who is the has been the chairman of Chelsea Football Club since February 2004, and other people who are deeply involved uh, within the club, um, like Emma Hayes, for example, whom you would imagine if had been, if not parties to Abramovich's most, you know, confidential uh, briefings would at least uh, have an idea what uh, what was involved in this word stewardship. And very clearly it appeared that, well, in fact, the trustees didn't really know what was what would be the consequences for them in terms of uh, personal and collective responsibility, accountability, and all these sort of things. Um, speaking to lawyers uh, and sports lawyers, uh, but lawyers and, you know, business lawyers at the time, uh, the response I got was that stewardship mean pretty next to nothing uh, in, in legal terms. So there was this lack of clarity, which led, as you know, to 
the foundation itself distanciating uh, itself from uh, Abramovich's statement, and which is quite extraordinary when you think about it, but which also is indicative of a certain sense of panic, whatever the sleekness of the PR operation might be, but a certain sense of panic, what do we do? Because there's a real threat here that the sanctions which the British government have said would be imposed on close allies of uh, Vladimir Putin, we're going to go from talk to action at some point. Well, or so we think. And so you have to act quickly. And I get the feeling that this was the plan A, was in a way to distantiate and, and to have the responsibilities put in the, uh, the hands of, of the trustees. The trustees obviously are not too keen on it. Then you move, you move the goalpost, as it were, because suddenly there is no more talk about this foundation, which I think is a, quite an extraordinary thing, is that within a few days, within what, uh, 96 hours? Yeah. We've moved from plan A, which is the foundation is going to uh, be given the stewardship and take care of the club. So I'm taking a step back, but in a way I take a, taking a step back because I want to remain in place to no, actually, you know what? I'm not going to remain in place. I want to find a buyer for the club because it's in the best interest of the club and so forth. And then there is no mention of the foundation anymore. And I, I find that this disappearance, that the fact nobody talks about it, quite extraordinary. I, um, and, and what you have is a mention of a new charitable foundation, which yes, is yet unnamed, which as yet no no public details of as as far as I'm aware, which will receive all net proceeds from the sale as a yep. donation, um, and the foundation will be for the benefit of all victims of the war in Ukraine, which is very again you know noble in t in tone but very in unclear as to what exactly it means. Um, does it mean the, uh, no, I mean, the, the Ukrainian nation itself, the government, the, all the infrastructure that is being raised to the ground by Russian bombs at the moment, the people who, <sighs> families of people who've lost their lives already, the families of those helpless, hapless young Russian soldiers who are also, you know, dying in Ukraine as we speak, it's very unclear. And I, you know, and it's understandable in a way that you cannot be, you know, in the, in the circumstances that we found ourselves in, you cannot possibly ask for something to be uh, cast in, you know, in, in stone right now. But what we're trying to understand is what exactly it means as far as his own position is and what also the consequences are for Chelsea Football Club. And this plan B, uh, which is the sale of the club, there are, as you say, many things, many questions, more questions than answers. Because again, yes, the net proceeds is something which I immediately, uh, the, the word net immediately made me ooh, think, well, what is meant by that? Uh, on one hand, Roman Abramovich is saying that the money that he loaned to the club, which is 1.5 billion, is not something he's going to ask back from the buyer. Okay. But then how much at how much does he value the club? And the information we're getting, and I, I, I'm th I think we're getting the same information, Duncan, is that we're looking at a figure between three and 3.5 billion pounds, which is a lot of money. I think, I think here it's important to reference the, the Swiss billionaire, Hans-Jörg Weiss, yes. who kind of blew this story 
um, into the public domain by saying that Abramovich is trying to sell all of his villas in England. He also wants to get rid of Chelsea quickly. I and three other people received an offer on Tuesday to buy Chelsea from Abramovich. He said the price was four billion pounds and that the club owes Abramovich two billion um, and said he could only do it himself if he was to get involved in a consortium. But he's basically saying there that the asking price that was put to him was four billion. Now, in terms of that net proceed line, Abramovich could say, I'm not going to ask for the loans to be repaid, but if his asking price is achieved and that asking price is four billion, then um, that doesn't mean the full four billion goes to this foundation. I, I, I've queried um, representatives of Bramovich on this t- today to ask them what exactly net proceeds meant and received no reply. So it, it's an open um, statement, as have many of these statements been. Um, and the, the question, I think, is who is capable of, of buying it and what price can be achieved in, in this fire sale? Yeah, and, and the question is how much the club is worth. And um, yeah, which is of course very very difficult. I mean, you've got things, you've got assets which you can quantify. Uh, you've got playing assets, and I think that if you look at the players that they've got on their books, uh, the length of the contracts and so forth, all the things you've got, all the parameters you've got to factor in, um, you you get to uh, about eight hundred to nine hundred million pounds in terms of uh, the worth. I mean, the the, the players themselves. Again, these figures, to be absolutely honest, are uh, are purely theoretical. Yes, but, and, and, it, and we should we should say we should see here yeah. on, on the uh, the, mo- the most recent accounts of Chelsea, i.e., Fordstone Limited, who is the holding company that mm. controls Chelsea. The intangible assets of Chelsea, which are mainly the players, are valued at four hundred thirty-seven million, and the tangible fixed assets are one hundred seventy-nine million. Yeah. I, I talked to someone who's been involved in, in transactions and, and actually was involved in look, valuing Chelsea when Abramovich was, had kind of placed it softly on the market after he had his um, UK visa uh, taken back from him several years ago. And he, his assessment was that Chelsea is probably worth £2 billion, given that you have a huge problem over the stadium. Um, given that, for example, Tottenham Hotspur recently received a proposal from uh, uh, an American-based SPAC, which valued their um, club at three billion, including um, seven hundred million of debt, so two point three yeah. billion for the for the equity. So the idea that he can get four billion in this market, which is which, according to to Vice, is what he was asking for, seems um, extremely optimistic. Yeah, and and I think one crucial aspect of this, and uh, you touched upon it, is 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 the stadium, um, which is a problem that Chelsea has been trying to address for a number of years. Remember how they were trying at one point to uh, relocate uh, the the club to a Battersea Power Station, which, by the way, I thought was an absolutely magnificent idea. But these these days are long gone. But at the moment, the capacity, if I'm not mistaken, is just under forty two thousand. Uh, the scope for extending the capacity um, is extremely limited. So when you're talking 42,000, you're talking about, uh, that's, my goodness, that's 30, 
34,000 fewer people than at Old Trafford. It's much smaller than the Emirates. It's much smaller than uh, the new Tottenham um, Watspur Stadium. It's smaller than Anfield. It would be smaller than the new Everton football stadium if this football stadium was ever constructed. Um, so we've got a problem here because also we've got a local authority, Hammersmith and Fulham. I should know, I'm a, I'm a resident of it, <laughs> uh, which always looks askance at um, uh, developments, which, uh, especially in that area, which is a very heavily built residential area, uh, which would actually have a, a negative impact on that. And the local residents as well are not exactly the easiest to deal with. I think there's a, a case of one particular resident who is situated, I mean, just located by the East Stand, I think, who strenuously ref refuses uh, to sell his property or their property. Because uh, there was, a, there was a, a plan, wasn't there, at one point to expand the stadium that way, and they can't do that. There's also the added problem, of course, that the ground itself, the, the freehold of the ground, uh, is not the property of uh, Chelsea Football Club, uh, but uh, of a different company, which is not controlled uh, by, the, uh, by, by the football club, but by so-called uh, Chelsea pitch owners, and, which is a big problem. So you think, okay, I mean, it is a club which has won 19 major trophies, I think, since Robin Abramovich arrived in, in June 2003. It's very successful. Uh, it's got a solid global fan base, even if it's not the equivalent of some of the super clubs. But the scope for uh, expansion are limited, very limited. And, and that's something to take into account, especially now. Um, and as well, I would imagine that given the situation in which Roman Abramovich finds himself, a quick fire sale, usually a quick fire sale is not what makes the price go up, is it? Yeah, I think the question is, can, can Chelsea survive in the same position of power as a football? club with a new owner given that you have well i think we can take russian oligarchs out of the potential constellation of of buyers at present mm -hmm. um you have someone like jim ratcliffe who i'm told does have the money available who who looked at chelsea several years ago and um and and made an attempt to buy it before buying uh, nice in in france um yeah. and has his own uh, goals in terms of a sporting project, but I don't see someone like Ratcliffe putting what amounts to 1.5 billion over over 90 years um, into the club as fund as funding. Um, you have an American buyer in Ted Bowley who who runs a a, a large consolidated investment fund that's, that's said to be worth 7.5 billion. Um, but generally with American buyers, they are looking for profit on their purchases. Um, and I think if this had happened a year ago, then there would be a real serious possibility of a, a sovereign wealth fund, um, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, of, of, of taking on Chelsea rather than Newcastle United. But I'm not mm -hmm. aware of a, a nation state buyer who is looking for a club at present and, and ready to do that kind of deal in the kind of abbreviated timescale that Abramovich seems to have been provoked into making this decision by. 
And there's another, an, another source of investment which we can more or less discard, which is, of course, coming from the Far East and from China. Um, the bubble and well and as well and truly burst. We know that the Chinese authorities are not too keen in seeing uh, their own billionaires uh, invest a lot of money outside of the country in, in foreign football clubs. We've seen a lot of Chinese capital trying to get out of football uh, as, it, uh, you know, as it happens. So that's another avenue which is, which is, not, really, which is not really open. I mean, the clubs, I, I think the one thing you would say is which speaks in favor of it in terms of financial terms, is that the club has certainly done uh, big efforts in the recent past to redress uh, its financial imbalance. Uh, Abramovich hasn't had to put as much money as he used to put in it. They've managed to more or less stabilize the finances. Uh, they've put in place a very successful uh, youth policy, which uh, you know, has to be applauded and uh, of which they're reaping the fruits on the field, by the way, um, which means that they, they have changed their modus operandi. Um, nobody doubts that uh, the club is not run. I mean, Marina Granovskaya has a very high reputation uh, in whether a new owner would be able to keep her is a different matter. But the, the club is, you know, it's, it's a seductive offer. But again, it's the amount of money that is quoted seems to me quite unreasonable, really. Um, now, the thing is that the circumstances are what matter. And it might be that there is a point at which um, something is better than nothing. Um, even if there are no signs at the moment that the British government is going to act perhaps as decisively as others in this particular field, we shall see. Um, but I've yet to see, for example, uh, I've just read that um, the yacht of um, an oligarch was seized in the south of France, in La Ciotat, this afternoon. Um, not frozen. It was, it was seized by the French customs. Uh, and it might be that other measures of that kind will be taken soon. Uh, but again, he's got to think about this possibility and the possibility of the conflict, unfortunately, the very likely possibility of the conflict getting even more serious and the sanctions even more severe. So where that leaves the club... I, a a conflict which, which one of his, his spokespersons said that Abramovich had been asked um, to intervene in and and that he was doing what he could uh, to help. Yes, well, um, I've read this story as well, to be honest. I mean, and I've, I've tried um, to substantiate it. I haven't found any pictures showing uh, any photographic evidence or film evidence yeah. showing that Roman Abramovich was indeed in Belarus or had traveled to Belarus, uh, looking at um, you know where his private jet has been flying the last few days. There was no sign of a flight to Belarus. There was a, I think there was one to Moscow. Um, not that long ago. Um, and of course, he might very well take another means of transport to go there, but there are no reasons to believe that it might have been his intention to play some kind of uh, role as, as, as a go-between, as somebody who would try to initiate a dialogue, but there is absolutely no proof that this has been happening. And I find that actually quite remarkable, the fact that we've taken the communication coming from uh, Mr. Abramovich almost at face value in our media. And I'm not saying he's lying. All I'm saying is that we're talking about somebody who is put in an extraordinarily difficult situation and he's trying to do whatever he can to extricate himself from this situation, both in terms of reputation, in terms of, uh, of, of, of wealth, and that therefore we should take what he says perhaps with a pinch of salt. It might be a noble intention, yes, I don't know. Perhaps let's give him the benefit of the doubt. 
But when it comes to what is actually happening, we've heard about this foundation. It's not happening quite clearly. We've heard about the peacekeeping um, or, you know, the mission, the goodwill mission. Uh, well, maybe he's placing calls with some of his friends. After all, he had a very close relationship with a close relationship with Vladimir Putin for quite a while. Let's not forget that. Uh, that's possible, but we haven't seen anything tangible, which showed that that was the case. So, it's it's. I find it quite, especially in the, given in the current circumstances where everything is so fluid and everything is so difficult to to place a judgment on. Which is why I'm very, you know, Duncan. You can. I hope it it goes across. Is that I'm trying to be very careful here because I'm not saying because I can't that. This is true. This is untrue. All I'm saying is that it's question after question after question after question, and no clear answers being given. We're in the land in the land of hypothesis and perhaps mirage, and at the moment, it's very difficult to tell what is what, what is real, what is not real, what is just a uh, an idea, a wish, a vision, and what is actually happening. And I think this uncertainty around him is also an uncertainty which affects. Chelsea Football Club, and therefore will probably plays a role in the way that people are going about it. And you know, prospective buyers are also wondering. If I were a prospective buyer, by the way, I mean, let's just the land of a hypothesis. If I were a prospective buyer, this kind of sale is not done in twenty four hours. Don't get no. takes a long time to set this up. It's it takes negotiations. It takes you know every due diligence, and. Who knows where we will be in a week's time? We don't even know where we will be tomorrow. I think it is fair to say that from, at least from Abramovich's perspective of his personal wealth and his exposure to criticism um, and to pressure that, it, that is coming from the Labour Party and others for him to be sanctioned, uh, the war in the Ukraine is damaging to him. He he's placed in a position where you can see a logic for him to try and intervene if it is safe for him to intervene, which is mm -hmm. of course a question. Do you think it is correct that he should be sanctioned for his? He and other oligarchs should be sanctioned for their involvement. Uh, and associations with the current Russian state? Um, I think so, yes. Um, I'm not the only person to think so. Um, now, this doesn't mean that he was complicit in the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. It doesn't mean that he is a, a fervent supporter of President Putin's um, dictatorial role. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it is by all means and purpose. Now, in a country where you put children in jail, and um, because they place flower on a memorial and where you also arrest uh, a survivor of the Leningrad siege because she's demonstrating against the war uh, is not a country that deserves to be called other than that. And it's, it's a tragedy. And um, so you cannot hold him personally responsible. He's not the person asking the jets to bomb Kharkiv and, and Mariupol and Kiev. But the fact is, that the sanctions are meant to hurt Russia, its economy, and people who are close to the regime. Let's not forget he was the governor of the province of Chukotka, 
Let's not forget that he became a senator as well of this province. I mean, many people have forgotten that. That uh, and he needed, I believe, a, a special derogation, which came directly from the top of the Kremlin to do that. He was an, an important player in the bid for Russia uh, twenty eighteen. Yeah, uh, he's met President Putin since then. Uh, he's somebody. He's been extremely clever at distanciating himself from the regime, and you know. <laughs> Some others who haven't have, have paid for it, but he, he tried and I think he succeeded in many ways to create a, a public persona, which is extraordinary for somebody who doesn't speak ever, yes. uh, which presented him as somehow distant and a different oligarch. But the fact is that is, we know where his fortune comes from. It comes from the uh, acquisition of assets. Let's use that word, neutral word, uh, in the Yeltsin era. It comes from uh, his relationship at the time with Boris Berezovsky, we know how this finished. So, yes, he's part of it. Yeah, I think, I think here we can point listeners to Roman Abramovich's own testimony on the matter. He's a man who, who virtually never speaks to the media, but he did have to testify in a court case um, taken against him by Boris Berezovsky. Uh, he was sued in the UK for three billion pounds uh, in 2012, and he made a very long witness statement in which he details the process of paying Boris Berezovsky um, over $2.5 billion for access to then Russian President Boris Yeltsin, mm -hmm. which enabled him to build his business empire from um, businesses and, and shares that had originally been property of uh, the Russian people, the Russian government. Um, as you say, his his involvement in Russia, despite this kind of separation he'd built for himself by um, buying houses in the UK, buying a football club, becoming a very prominent figure. And that, that has always been described by people who, who know him well to me as, as a kind of insurance policy, a way of, of um, making him, giving himself a degree of protection from what the Russian state might mm -hmm. do. Um, he, by his own testimony in that court case, spent approximately $120 million on the development of Russian football. Um, these things have been described as, uh, as elements that were requested by the president of Russia, by Putin, mm. in order to um, improve his position and, and improve uh, Russia's global standing. So he has a clear past involvement with the Russian state. Um, and I think we could also direct the listeners who would doubt that to uh, two books, which I think are essential reading about uh, Putin's Russia, uh, which are Putin's kleptocracy, the Karen Dawisha uh, book, which is absolutely quite extraordinary, in which um, Mr. Abramovich uh, is named in this context. And of course, uh, Catherine Belton's Putin's People, which is still available, despite we know there was a legal case involving uh, her publisher, Harper Collins, Catherine Belton, and representatives, legal representatives of Mr. Abramovich and three other oligarchs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the book is still out, can still be read. An out-of-court settlement was reached for something like $1.5 million, uh, the equivalent of. We've got to be very careful about this because we're dealing with people who are extremely, um, very quick at litigating. So, and you know that in Britain, um, in England, that is, 
you've got to be very careful about what you say. I think people can should buy the book anyway, give some royalties to Catherine and uh, <laughs> her publisher, who can do with them, and uh, and read what has been said, which, by the way, is not something that was born uh, uh, out of um, Catherine Belton's imagination, but uh, direct testimony coming from uh, Pugachev and, and two other uh, former uh, Russian, I mean, who's called them dignitaries, very high, highly placed, uh, who made claims about uh, Putin encouraging, shall we say, Roman Abramovich to buy Chelsea at the time in 2003. Uh, these are just claims. Uh, they, were, they have been denied strongly by Mr. Abramovich and his legal counsels. I believe I, that these denials are actually, uh, have been added to the book. Yes. Uh, but basically, the, the fact that there is a link between uh, Putin's Putin and, and Roman Abramovich is something that, that can, cannot be doubted. I also very much uh, doubt that uh, we, you would have seen the leader of the opposition um, asking that the question about sanctions about Mr. Abramovich in the House of Commons, regardless of parliamentary privilege, but opening uh, is, is questioning of the prime minister by actually naming Mr. Abramovich, to which Boris Johnson replied that they were not, we, he wasn't there to discuss personal cases, I believe was what he said. And that he was also named in the list of uh, 35 oligarchs, which was read using parliamentary privilege by a Liberal Democrat uh, MP uh, at, at the House of Commons as well. So I don't think there is much doubt about that. Uh, people can say, well, is it fair to sanction individuals uh, when uh, it is a, you know, a regime that is, um, that is acting the way it is at the moment? You could say, well, he's caught in the structure of the Russian state, and and yes. as as I pointed out, if you look at his own testimony of how he made his fortune, it details how he extracted wealth um, through, he would argue, through an unnecessary fashion. At the time, he was doing the only the only things that were were possible to do in order to be a successful businessman. But he is he extracted wealth from. The Russian state, and and in that testimony, he talks about how he welcomed Putin's um, arrival as president to replace Yeltsin, um, yeah. because Putin uh, said that he he would he would bring a degree of of enforcement of rules as long as the oligarchs paid um, their taxes to the Russian state. Al-Sharus Manov um, is one of the other oligarchs who was mentioned in Parliament um, as an individual who certain people feel should be sanctioned and certainly the European Union have already enforced sanctions upon him. Now, Usmanov is formally a sponsor of Everton Football Club, as a sponsor to a huge degree um, through his, his company USM Holdings, um, someone who has paid £30 million for, simply for options, her first option on the naming rights of Bramley Moor Dock Stadium. Um, my understanding was that Everton were bought because Usmanov wanted to um, extract a degree of revenge on Stan Kroenke for not selling him Arsenal Football Club. We know Usmanov bought a large percentage of shares and tried to take over the club in full. Kroenke refused to do that. Um, I've been told that Usmanov then decided he would buy um, another English club and turn it into a club who were capable of surpassing Arsenal in 
domestic and European football. Mm -hmm. He used a business associate, Farhad Mashiri, who's the chairman of USM, as the holder of those shares. Um, the project, I think it's safe to say, has been a failure from a football perspective. Uh, they've run up um, over £250 million of losses in their last three accounting years. They are trying to build a new stadium at Bramley Moor Dock that was, I'm told, originally a £500 million project. The latest estimates on costs, I understand, is £700 million. Tens of millions of pounds have already been put into, spent into the preparation of the site. Um, there is a feeling that Usmanov may use this situation where he is been sanctioned by the European Union, where Everton have um, suspended, not cancelled, but suspended their sponsorships or commercial sponsorships with the Russian companies USM, Megaphone and Yota, who are also um, subsidiaries of uh, Mashiri Usmanov companies as a way of extracting himself from the Everton project. So it might not just be Chelsea that is placed for sale as a result of um, European sanctions uh, and potential UK sanctions on the owners of a, an English football club, we could also see Everton up for sale. Yep. And, um, and when you value the club, uh, as much as you can see that Chelsea would command a, a very high price still, you know, whatever we think of the 3.5 or 4 billion figure that has been quoted. Uh, when you look at uh, the club's uh, assets, when you look at the location, Stamford Bridge, when you look at all these things, when you look at the trophies one, uh, you can understand why somebody might be ready to put a lot of money on the table. When it comes to Everton Football Club, I'm afraid that, to be honest, I mean, it looks very, very dark to me. And uh, it was already, as you said, looking pretty dark before that. Um, you would also, I mean, that's a personal sentiment here, but I've also wondered for a long time how this new stadium could really have the transformative effect on the, the fortunes of the club that people thought it could have, uh, given as well its proximity to a true giant of, of European and world football. Yeah. And you think... I mean, that has been my, my view from the beginning, thinking what is wrong with being uh, a top eight club? And I, I just don't understand why does it have to be a top five or top four or top one club? I don't understand that. When the club is from the outside, not one that can be brought to that level without the kind of investment that the current owners current owner now, because he now controls, I think, Mr. Mashiri, at least 89.4%, I believe, of, of, of the shares, um, he simply is not in a position to, uh, to invest. You know, he's, he's no Sheikh Mansour. He's no Qatar Sports Investment. He's no Roman Abramovich. And if Mr. Rosmanov, and, you know, there's absolutely no way that Alisha Rosmanov is, is going to even be able to invest that kind of money. I, I have to say, you're extremely worried for, you know, this, this grand old club. And 
you start wondering about whether it was all a folly, really, some kind of madness. That, that over because you know, in terms of the way the club has been run as well, because you could make a case for the fact that Chelsea, dysfunctional as they've been for so long, have thrived on this dysfunctionality. <laughs> it's taken a lot of money, of course, to make it function in a dysfunctional way, but the trophies have been here. There is a clear way of running that club. Uh, there is a structure in place at the club, which is now quite a solid one. And again, there is, I, I insist on that, the the youth policy has, has borne fruit. Um, I don't see that happening with Everton. I I really don't. And it, it saddens me. I, I love that club. and and uh, But what I'm seeing right now is, I mean, it's very dark horizon, really. I, yeah, I think the problem is the investment has already gone in and it's been misspent in, in terms of the playing squad. Yeah. Potentially the money that goes towards the stadium so far may end up being a project that cannot be completed. Where are you? So you therefore have more misspent money. And because of financial fair play rules in European football and domestic football, although they are currently suspended because of COVID, the firepower for a next owner, if the club is sold, becomes extremely limited because the, 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 the losses have already been run up. It's the, the kind of polar opposite position to Newcastle United, where Mike Ashley's leadership of the club was so parsimonious um, and so bottom line oriented that Saudi Arabia, uh, Amanda Staveley, and the Rubin brothers have the capacity to put a lot of money in early without breaking domestic financial fair play rules, which gives them a platform in which to try and emulate the Manchester City model of building a club, which is very much their goal and something, um, something that Amanda Staveley has talked about publicly. Um, yeah. a, a story we, we broke on the podcast very early in the, the takeover of, of Newcastle United was that they aimed to be a competitor for the Champions League and the Premier League. Within five years, you see Amanda Staveley and Nardad Gadusi, her husband, um, putting that on record in, in the past week. Um, it's not the kind of discourse you're going to hear from Everton, I think. <laughs> it's not. And I, I, and I think the word you used, folly, is an important one there. And I think people who are familiar with, with the purchase process and the strategy that, that was in, engaged in, um, the motivations of the people involved, the frustrations uh, uh, not, not being able to buy Arsenal, which is a club that Usmanov supported, um, and uh, and the focus on 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 outdoing Arsenal at another English club has has resulted um, through a number of, of of very bad football and strategic decisions in the situation where they're now in danger of relegation and have had to suspend the, the companies which provide them with the majority of their commercial revenue, commercial revenue that was increased by over 100% uh, in the last uh, club accounts and predominantly as a result of those um, options that were bought by USM to have naming rights on the new stadium. That feels a bit like what is called a rug pool, isn't it? <laughs> and then suddenly when the rug is pulled from beneath your feet and the impact it, this will have as well and, and the people on the people who are working at the club at the moment which is the other thing that we haven't talked about at all 
uh, there's going to be an impact and you, you can't avoid it uh, on the fans, but also on on the players, on the management, uh, on the whole hierarchy of the club. And um, that is unquantifiable. And again, we're talking at the moment when, uh, to be honest, there's hardly <laughs> this crisis really exploded only a few days ago. We really don't know where we're going to go. And at the moment, the uncertainty uh, around what's happening in, in both clubs, my, my goodness, let, you know, lets you think that it's going to get far, far worse before it can get any better. Um, tragically, there, less tragically, but still importantly for many people, uh, here as well, uh, both in Chelsea, but especially at, at Everton. Yes, and and that you could say from Abramovich is talking about the interests of Chelsea and the interests of the club and the supporters that there is a perspective in which if you delete this um, promise to put the pro the net proceeds into a charitable foundation that perhaps Abramovich himself controls, um, the way in which you would strengthen the position of the club in these circumstances is to sell for the least amount possible. That would, that would allow the new owners to put more money into maintaining um, Chelsea's spending at the level that, that has been achieved under Abramovich. Yes, because again, this, um, the magical owner doesn't really exist. You can't see anybody jumping in at the moment. There's no sovereign fund I can think of who could jump in. Um, we're probably going to hear some very strange rumors linking the club to um, some mysterious investors from mysterious provenances, but we can't think of Uf UFC fighters, retired UFC fighters, for example. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> and um, yeah, so um, yeah, it doesn't all go well. Uh, and, and to be honest, at the moment when the communication uh, at the moment is we've got to keep thinking about it is that what we're seeing now is not just business uh, decisions which are made public what is happening now is a public relations exercise we should never forget that which is crucial because you know you have when you have so many interests it's such a huge part of your fortune even if you've stashed a few things away um, in assets which can conceivably be frozen or worst seized by the countries in which they're based, well, you're going to try everything you can to present yourself as somebody who really is not to blame for what is going on. And again, you know, it's not Roban Abramovich who's, who's ordered troops to enter Ukraine. <laughs> that's, not what, that's not what anybody's saying. Uh, the problem is that these links to the regime are such that any meaningful sanctions against this regime would include people like Roman Abramovich and Alisha Uzmanov and many others. You talk about public relations exercise. Let, let's move on to an organization which um, I think you've excavated more truth about than probably any other journalist out there, which is FIFA. And their response to what happened in the Ukraine, their rapidly, well, their initial slow response and then their rapidly adjusted response. Um, uh, Semi-rapidly. Uh, it was rapid in slow motion. 
um, the remarkable thing was, um, and it's not the first time. FIFA is a is a very slow juggernaut, um, but you've got some some bodies are like those massive tankers which take ages to change direction. But then when they've changed direction, they go on and they go on their way and in a very you know determined fashion, which is for example what. Uh, the European Union has done, which was kind of slow, but not really slow compared to what happened usually. But it's a huge tanker, and it's now it's going in direction, and that's it. We, it's very clear. When it comes to FIFA, we have to remember that to start with, there was absolutely no condemnation from from FIFA. There was just an expression of regret at the tragedy and the human cost, and of course, fine sentiments shared by all of us. But there was again this constant mantra of football is the sport that unites us all. You know, the usual, I was going to say rubbish. It's not rubbish because it's true, but when it's used like that, it becomes rubbish, which is dreadful. When you empty words, which are so important and mean so much to achieve so many people, when you empty them of their true signification, you're not serving your sport very well, to say the least. When you're, talking, to- when you're talking, for example, about biennial World Cups helping with the, uh, the migration, Crisis yes. in yes. in Africa. I, I don't think we need to come back on that. That was that was a disgraceful moment. Um, but in this particular case, you have to remember that it started. You know, first of all, we had the Polish, uh, the the Czech, and the Swedish FAs saying, "No way, we're not playing against those guys." Yeah, and that's it. We're not going to play. And then more federations and member associations started to. You know, we're waiting for for leadership here, but the leadership didn't didn't come from FIFA. And it didn't come from UEFA either. We shouldn't, you know, suddenly think that UEFA is, again, the nice guy in this. UEFA also dragged its feet. And, and then you realize that the England, England, Wales, and amazingly, Switzerland, I, I never thought I would live to, to see that, Switzerland asks for the suspension of the Russian Football Union. Switzerland before FIFA even mentioned the possibility of that. And then the statement, and I might have missed something, and I might be unfair, but I don't think I missed anything, and I don't think I'm being unfair. The statement started that FIFA reiterated its condemnation of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It had never said anything of the kind in those words. It was presenting a company, it was rewriting its own history. And it took huge pressure as well from FIFPRO, uh, to convince FIFA to finally take the decision that its mem- the huge majority of the member associations were asking, asking them to take. And I, there was one point, actually, when I thought that the pressure was such that it was not just uh, endangering the loyalty or that Jenny Infantino um, Benefits from uh, in 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 this in the member associations. I thought it was actually starting to endanger his his, his actual rule. It, it couldn't carry on like that. Really? Because that's that's quite I, a statement, really, Philippe. Well, I say that because I have talked, as you can imagine, with quite a few people um, from member associations, football associations, and so forth, from various places, not just mm-hmm. Europe. And the feeling I got were people really. Really, I mean, you have to come back, first of all, to the fact that he has lost 
uh, the support of the 54 nations, well, which compose African, the African Confederation. First of all, by forcing his own president, Patrice Motsepe, in the circumstances which have been you know, related in great detail. And I've certainly done a lot of work on it for Yosima, but also these remarks about migrants crossing the Mediterranean were just completely unacceptable, and they were unacceptable. You can imagine how they went down on the African continent, where FIFA is now seen as a colonizer, a neo-colonizer, an imperialist power. Yeah, and, and I, should, I should refer our listeners to Philippe's articles on this, because basically Gianni Infantino has taken control of the African Federation. It's quite a remarkable state of affairs, and Philippe has, has, has detailed that in a number of articles, which yes, if you're well, interested, think, please read. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and, and he has lost a lot of support there. And it's a continent that was uh, very important to him when he was elected. Um, and we'll see what the consequences of, of this are. When it comes to the reaction to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the, the fact that it was so slow uh, eroded even more the little respectability um i mean did huge slow 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 and conservative because the initial response was you can carry on playing um you're not allowed to call yourself russia you're not allowed to have a russian anthem but you will be the russian football union yeah the the kind of charade that we had from the ioc um, exactly so uh, which is quite extraordinary really and um and this, I, I genuinely thought when, when speaking to, to people from various organizations and member associations, that a number of them really had had enough. They had had enough. And um, that they, it's a very, you know, people, as long as, um, I suppose you get what you want from, from a regime, you tend to forget um, who is in charge and how power is exercised. I think there is a tendency for that if I get my money. I'll just forget about the rest. But all these things that, in French, we say all the snakes you've swallowed in the <laughs> past, suddenly they taste a bit different in the light of what is going on. And the fact is, it's not just um, Jenny Infantino, by the way. Sepp Blatter was the same. Uh, the FIFA hierarchy has always uh, loved uh, being in, uh, you know, uh, very close to tyrants. Strong men, they're always men. Um, you know, when you entered Seb Blatter's uh, office at, in Zurich, it was basically just photographs of him with powerful people and decorations and medals he received, just like uh, Jenny Infantino was decorated from the Order of Friendship by Vladimir Putin, uh, which is, by the way, his uh, profile picture on Wikipedia at the moment, which I find is uh, quite uh, interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, there, this kind of complicity with strong power, uh, which has been a hallmark of, of the way FIFA operates, uh, is something that I think m- more and more people are, are getting very uncomfortable with. And it's not just football fans like you and me. It's not just people who, who can't stand what's happened to FIFA and don't like the way football is run. It's also people who are in member associations and FAs who really have had enough. And I thought if, it, if he hadn't finally decided to uh, to get the FIFA tanker to change direction, he would have got in, into serious trouble. And, um, and I, I can tell you that, you know, honestly, this is not something I'm making up. I've 
I, I'm sure you're not, Philippe, with your I'm connections. It up, and I'm very interested to see how it's going to play up in the longer term uh, in terms of the, the opposition to the way he's, uh, he's ruling FIFA. Uh, we know that there is at the moment this massive chasm between on one hand FIFA and on the other CONMEBOL, South American Confederation and UEFA. We know how UEFA and CONMEBOL have signed uh, an agreement uh, of cooperation, uh, which means that South American countries can take part in the Nations League and things like that, which is basically almost like a, a parallel World Cup with, with only the, the, the best teams. And you could see very quickly, I mean, FIFA, let's not forget, FIFA is nothing without its member organizations. Its power is entirely derived from the fact that it, it says, we are the governing body of football. If people turn away and say, you know what, you're not, they have, they're, they're in trouble. And it's something which has been at the back, to be honest, of, of um, the premise of football governance for, for a while and is coming to a head now because of everything else, the Club World Cup project, the, the European Super League, the African Super League, um, the tensions between UEFA and, and FIFA, FIFA seeing the champ UEFA Champions League as something which, you know, if it could be less, uh, I mean, basically crush, if they could crush it, they would crush it. Um, and, and you could carry on like that. And, and so we, we, are, we are at a stage where um, uh, you, you, could, you could feel that the rift that exists could widen into something more than that. And again, it's something which I've talked about with a number of people, number of stakeholders. Uh, certainly the, uh, the Biennial uh, World Cup project, which FIFA hasn't given up yet, um, is something that is deeply, deeply uh, wounding and uh, resented by a number of people and more and more openly to the point that you could imagine a situation in which you have countries deciding, you know what, we're not going to take part in it. I know, I know it sounds crazy. I mean, how could it happen? Well, I tell you what, it could happen. Because one, one more time, FIFA only means something. FIFA is the World Cup. That's how it exists. Financially, that's the World Cup. FIFA exists because there are 211 member associations which take part in the qualifications and some of them in the final tournament. That's, without those member associations behind it, FIFA is nothing. And it cannot go on being uh, uh, the financier of world football, the governing body of world football, the supreme tribunal of world football, uh, the maker of laws, the police. Uh, the, uh, every, it, it is everything to everything, and which, is, which just cannot work. And um, you will also see, and I, and I know I'm go going on, and by all means, just make me shut up and please, guys, just <laughs> fast forward. But what you can see, for example, at the moment, what's happening in Zimbabwe with FIFA. Well, Zimbabwe, the federation has basically been put aside by the authorities there for one simple reason. They are totally corrupt. They've tried to hush up an absolutely appalling sexual abuse scandal. Loads of people are, uh, are involved in that. And the Zimbabwean authorities have decided quite rightly that the people who had broken Zimbabwean law in terms of corruption and so forth should be set aside and have put in place a committee which is trying to sort out what on earth is federation. What has the response of FIFA been 
threatening the Zimbabwean authorities, <laughs> basically putting its own authority above the laws of the the laws of the country of Zimbabwe, just like they did in Trinidad and Tobago, which is an absolutely scandalous story, which I've, I've written a, 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 on, about as well, where basically they substitute themselves to the rule of the land. Now, there is only, you can only go so far, and you can try that perhaps in, with countries which do not have the, the weight, the political weight to do something meaningful and powerful about it, apart from going to Cassie, if they can, because it costs a lot of money. And, and then, you know, so we impose normalization committee here. We prevent these people in Zimbabwe or in Trinidad and Tobago or in Kenya to do, from doing their job. And we do that. We can do it. And FIFA, and this is part of Jenny Infantino's rule. And um, it's a part of his rule, which is actually much more in evidence than it was in the time of, of Seb Blatter. Seb Blatter didn't... Really I, like that. I agree. I agree, and I and I think it's it's important to highlight in a podcast where we're talking about the influence of geopolitics on football. It's important to highlight that you have an organisation who had the last World Cup in Russia four years after Crimea was taken by the Russian state. Have the next World Cup in Qatar. Then you have. Um, FIFA, as you say, trying to get control of a, of a Champions League, trying to usurp the UEFA Champions League and put their own competition in place. And one of the entities that were involved with in terms of financing that, Saudi Arabia, before they buy Newcastle United. It, it is a repeating theme which has become fundamental to the shape of, of football. And, and so to wrap up the podcast, we'll go to the hero and villain section. And the, my my villain of the week, and one where there there is a a panoply of of options, is Qatar. Um, and and why Qatar? Because Qatar have chosen to make an offer to Kylian Mbappe um, of a two year contract um, because it is fundamental to Qatar that they want to keep Mbappe as a Paris Saint Germain employee with with Lionel Messi and Neymar for the World Cup in this winter. They've offered a two-year contract worth, I understand, 50 million euros net per year with a 100 million euro net signing on fee. I'm told that Emmanuel Macron, the current president of France, and Nicolas Sarkozy, former president of France, have also been working on convincing Mbappe to stay in France. Sarkozy has very clear links with Qatar from his period as president. Um, if you ask Leonardo, the, the sports director, about, about these numbers, he'll tell you that they, this is his, his quote, we haven't set a precise offer. There is one important element. I think the last thing we will put on this contract will be the amount. Um, anyone who believes that, I think, uh, is, uh, is probably uh, slightly too credible in the way that Qatar have operated as um, an organisation, a nation that that is that has um, secured a World Cup and and created one of the most powerful football teams in European football. Mm. So that's your villain. That's my villain. Who do you choose as a hero, Philippe? Well, hero is um, too too perhaps too strong a word, but I I was uh, cheered in those very dark times by seeing um, two members of Parliament. Um, stand up and speak in the House of Commons 
uh, in a way that I um, thought was thoroughly encouraging. And I'm talking about um, Liberal Democrat uh, MP uh, Leila, Bro- uh, Leila Moran, uh, who used her parliamentary privilege to name 35 oligarchs, which are identified as uh, being uh, part of the, the Putin uh, sphere of influence, let's put it that way. Uh, the names are available everywhere. You can look at them. Uh, many of them will be very familiar. And actually, I think a couple of them were mentioned in this podcast. And the other is uh, Bob Seeley, um, who is a conservative MP for, for the Isle of Wight, and who spoke very forcefully about something which is absolutely crucial and crucial to us journalists, and I think, but also to you who listen to, uh, to what we say and read uh, what we write and, and exchange opinions with us. He named uh, some of the British lawyers who have been acting as the, uh, the dogs of war, so to speak, for these Russian oligarchs, preventing us journalists from doing our job by threatening us with legal actions. And I know that the legal action, you, you shouldn't threaten with legal action because we don't know what's going to happen in tri- a tribunal. Uh, so it's not a threat. But the threat is that of financial costs. There is absolutely no way independent journalists, small publishers, websites can actually fight these people in court, and they have got millions and millions. And the problem is that the English legal system is such, the libel laws uh, are are so strict, that we are prevented from doing our work properly, and that people who fall on the wrong side of those oligarchs are suddenly attacked by those British lawyers who, you know, make millions out of the money of, uh, out of the pockets of those billionaires and those kleptocrats and prevent us from telling the truth. And it was very encouraging to hear a member of parliament, especially coming from the conservative benches, um, speak up and name those lawyers again. Look it up, you will see who they are. Uh, Some names will surprise you because there are people whom you might see associated with good causes, but believe me, this is where they make their money. And uh, you know, I think it's Nick Cohen of, um, of The Observer wrote a piece in which he, he explained that if you defend a libel action in France, it will cost you something like £10,000. If you defend a libel action in Britain, it can, it can cost you like £1.5 So therefore, this is how you muzzle the press. This is how you muzzle the media. And so don't be too hard sometimes, dear listeners, <laughs> when you hear journalists being very careful, as we are trying to be, believe me, and not saying absolutely everything they know, and even they know for sure, because we know there's this threat. Um, that's one of the reasons, Duncan, why I work with Yosimar. Uh, we, we are Norwegian, and yes. so therefore Norwegian laws apply to us. We never print things which are defamatory or libelous. We try to print the truth, but we can do this in relative security, knowing that we would be defended by the Norwegian legal system. When it comes to England, don't you know, I, and, and speaking from experience, and I'm sure, Duncan, you must have been in this situation so often, where some great stories that we thought would have shone a light on, on what is happening in the world of football, naming names, uh, have been prevented from, uh, from being published by our own lawyers saying, if we do that, they're going to sue us, and we just don't have the means to fight against them. So well done, Lana Moran. Well done, Bob Seeley, for... Uh, taking the side of truth and uh, in, in the mother of all parliaments. There's a, 
a report by the Chatham House organization called the UK's kleptocracy problem, how servicing post-Soviet elites weakens the rule of law, published in last December. If you're interested in the detail of some of the things that Philippe is talking about and many other aspects of what we talked in the podcast, I think that that gives you a very um, precise and, uh, and worrying um, account of the problems the UK has with um, Russian and other wealth being, I think, um, ushered in for a long period into the country. But thank you, Philippe. I really appreciate your contribution today. And we will hopefully have, have you on the Transfer Window podcast again before too long. Yeah, and uh, we didn't even have time to talk about the extraordinary case of AS Monaco and its and, and Dmitry Rybolov left, but that will I'm sure that's a story that will run and run, unfortunately, and uh, we might come back to that. Well, the, point, the, sure. those those links as a teaser to our listeners, those links to Donald Trump are uh, are fascinating. Indeed, they are. That was the news before it became news. You can follow us via multiple social media channels on at Transfer Podcast. I'm at Duncan Castles and Philippe is at Philippe Auclair. Please rate, review and share the podcast. The next edition of the Transfer Window will be with you soon.